Okay, if you'd like to draw your conversations to a close, it'd also be really helpful if you had a Bible in front of you. So this is a moment for you to pause and move and grab a Bible. Um, there's some at the front here or some at the back. Um, we have our outstanding stewards handing them out. So if you'd like a Bible, you can stick a hand in the air and um, a team will come and bring them to you. While we're doing that, I totaled up yesterday how long I think I spent watching the coronation. I think I got about three hours um, watching the coronation and coverage. Anyone got more than three hours, do you reckon? Oh, okay, yeah, a few, a few more, uh, f- five, five hours, four, how, how many, Siska? All day, all day, ten, ten hours. Um, any, anyone brave enough to, did anyone not ca- manage to catch any of it at all? Anyone not see any of it? JP, a couple managed, managed to avoid the whole thing. Well, as, as um, Carlos was saying, it was an amazing spectacle, wasn't it? To, uh, to see all the pageantry, to see uh, all of those servicemen and women, to see all those uh, outfits. Incredible to see um, as a, a country, in spite of the rain, I, I think I read every coronation for the last 120 years has had rain on the coronation day, which is definitely a, a, a British thing. Uh, but also amazing to have so much gospel content contained as well. The, the word being preached, the prayer, the anointing, and also that symbolism as well of Jesus being Lord over everything. You think of that orb that was being held, that symbolizing the world and the cross on top of it. And um, also with a sense of king, the king being there to serve. Uh, first and foremost, wonderful to see that gospel content in a national event. And over the last few days, we've also had the local elec- elections, haven't we? So it's incredible to see the, the mundane alongside the majestic and news feeds about potholes, but also about pageantry. There's incredible vast range in the area of governance that we've seen in the last few days. And you may be a, a passionate royalist. You may have wanted to get everything you could of all that coverage from wall to wall, or you may have completely missed it. You really don't like the monarchy or the idea of it at all. Uh, Or you may have been very engaged in those local elections, or you may have got to Friday morning, oh, there was a vote yesterday, I was supposed to get out and vote. But the passage we're reading today begins with a reminder to be subject to rulers and authorities, and to be ready to do whatever is good. This is part of our witness as as Christians. Whatever we think about those, the, the government and the authorities over us, we are to be good citizens, empowered by remembering that we serve a much higher authority, as we were reminded uh, a part of the uh, coronation ceremony. He is the one that sets the standard of how we live. And although we try to be subject, remember, actually, we serve King Jesus above all. And knowing that we serve a God who is over all brings us greater freedom to be submissive to others who are over us, knowing that if we are honoring them, we're ultimately bringing honor to Jesus. There are times, however, when we do need to disobey rulers and authorities, but these are generally few and far between. Think of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, told to kill Israelite babies, or Daniel and his friends ordered to bow down and worship someone other than the living God. 
Or just in the last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer standing up to the Nazi regime in the 1940s. Or Martin Luther King confronting racial inequality in the 1960s. There are times when we do need to be faithfully disobedient. But today we'll see that by doing good, we can bring real change to a broken world. And this is rooted in being confident in our identity. Now, this week I was going through things that we'll need for our upcoming trip to France and going through the checklist. Um, I do like lists. Vicky often uh, takes the mickey out of me, of my list making. But every time it comes to packing, she's very glad that I have my, my list. And we very rarely forget anything. So on my list was this important item. Here we go, the high-vis jacket. So when driving in France, important to have this. Apparently, if you break down, you need to have this uh, with you, a legal requirement. Um, reminds us of our outstanding Connect and Stewarding team. Can we give them a little round of applause? Very good. Thank you for serving us each week and making sure we are safe and welcoming environment. But have you noticed that whenever you put on a high-vis jacket, your authority already increases? Probably about, what do you think, 15% increase? 20% increase when you have a high-vis jacket on. Um, and uh, some of my friends, um, a while ago at the New Day, the youth festival we uh, take our young people to, they decided, what they could see, decided to see what they could get away with while wearing a high-vis jacket and no other authority. So they went around the campsites, kind of doing that thing, the face that um, people wearing high-vis jackets and garage mechanics tend to do, they do that kind of face of like, this is not good. And so they go to people who spend hours assembling their tents, getting exactly the right place, and they think, sorry, these are too close. And so with no authority other than a yellow jacket, they told people to move their tents, take it down, and spread them apart. Somehow they managed to get away with this. Um, another friend, again equipped only in a high-vis jacket, waiting for the ferry to board, uh, to board was uh, a loss of what to do, and so he decided to start directing the traffic as he's coming off the ferry, only in a high-vis jacket, and people were following. It was totally safe, but he was like, no, you go that way, and you go that way. But they see, you have a high-vis jacket, therefore, you must know what to do. And so what I'd like us to do is to think today, actually, we could have the same level of confidence, maybe 20% increase, <laughs> of confidence in, in who we are. Because when we know who we are in Christ, actually, I'm going to take this off, unless you think it will bring a greater authority to my <laughs> preaching. When we know who we are in Christ, when we are confident in that, it transforms how we live, and ultimately it transforms how we can impact a broken world around us. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the, the book of Titus today. We're finishing out our series. If you do have a Bible in front of you, we'll read in just a moment. If you can be turning to page uh, 1199, 1199, we're in Titus chapter 3. But just a, a reminder of, of where we've been, Paul is seeking for Titus to establish some family values for the church on Crete. It's a tough environment to build church. The island was known for treachery, for greed, for corrupt leadership. And so the church, they were wrestling with this question, how do you build church in an environment hostile to the gospel? And this is a question that we can resonate with. Even though we saw yesterday the gospel being proclaimed uh, on national television for, for two hours, 
We generally live in a hostile environment to the gospel. So how then do we live? Building church is no easy task for Titus or for us today. So a quick recap on on where we've been so far in our series. Uh, We began by encouragement to live with a big vision because this will transform our perspective. Paul begins the letter by encouraging Titus to live with knowing that we're caught up in God's big story on the earth and that there's eternal life promised from the beginning of time. Then we saw that we're to live with godly character because this will transform the church. Paul tells Titus that those in the church should live with godly character and not follow the pattern of the world. Living with integrity is what the call of God is for his people. Then we're to live with clear thinking. We saw this last week in in chapter 2 because this will transform our our households, the older teaching the younger, and us living with self-control. And then today we're looking at how we live with confident identity, knowing that this will transform the world around us. So let's read what Paul has to say to Titus at the start of the final chapter, Titus chapter 3. It says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Okay, we're going to pause there. We'll continue on to see what Paul says in a moment. But as we move through Titus 3 today, we'll see how Jesus brings transformation to our lives and to our eternal destiny destiny, but it also changes how we engage with the world around us. And this is rooted in having our confidence in Christ Jesus. So our road back for the rest of the passage is seeing that our situation is worse than we thought. Secondly, there's more grace than you can imagine. And thirdly, Jesus calls us to change the world. Our situation is worse than we thought. There's more grace than you can imagine. And Jesus calls us to change the world. I think we'd agree that most people would say that our world isn't perfect. There's pain, there's difficulty all around us. In fact, Paul wants us to see firstly that our situation is worse than we thought. So important that if there is a problem, that we get the correct diagnosis. To know where things are going wrong, we need to have a clear understanding of where the source of the problem is. Like for the last few weeks, uh, my lawnmower has resolutely not started. Um, And for me, DIY is not my strong suit. Uh, I can cope with technical issues, but DIY is probably the most constant source of frustration and sanctification in my life uh, and the, the highest level of frustrations that is produced. So every now and again, I'll get my lawnmower out, kind of look at it, I'll pull the starter thingy. See, that's, that's the level of my knowledge of, of DIY, the starter thingy. Uh, and it, it wouldn't do anything. And uh, I ch- tried changing spark plugs, um, which I was, again, quite impressed with my level of ability to do that. Check the fuel lines, watch a multitude of YouTube vids, which kind of did 
not a great deal because I didn't really understand what they were talking about, but I watched them anyway. And then in desperation, I thought, I'll try changing the fuel, um, because that's something that said in a, in, a, in a video. And I tried then trying to drain the fuel from the lawnmower. And at that point, something clicked in the back of my mind. I don't know, it was something from a YouTube video or divine intervention or what. And if I thought, if I unscrew this screw, then I'll drain the carburetor. To be honest, I have no idea what a carburetor is or what it does. But I undid the screw, some oil came out, did the screw back up, pulled the pulley thing, and then the lawnmower spluttered into life, which I think deserves a little round of applause. Thank you. Um, and honestly, I've, I've basked in the glory of that for probably a couple of weeks now, haven't I? The fact that the lawnmower worked and I was able to, to fix it. Um, the problem was the carburetor. I could have changed the fuel, I could have got a different, better spark plug if those kind of things exist. I could have cleaned the mower blades, replaced the pull cord, but it would not have done any good because the problem was in the carburetor. The starting point for us, the starting point for confident identity that can transform the world is knowing what our biggest need is. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul outlines the depth of the problem. It begins at one time. At one time. This is the situation of everyone. The corrupt Cretans on the island, the legalistic Paul before he encountered Jesus, those who live around us and us ourselves, we are all in need of salvation. And it's worse than we thought. Because our culture says today to live well, we have all we need. We just need to dig deep and be true to ourselves. We'll admit that we may have minor problems, minor foibles, because no one's perfect, but basically, we're okay. That's the current prevailing thought. And if we're to say to someone that you're in need of salvation, that's frankly offensive. How dare you say that I have this deep need, that I need salvation? But if we don't see the real issue, we can't fully appreciate God's grace to us. As Paul says in verse 3, that we're foolish and disobedient. This primarily relates to our rejection of God. Psalm 14 and Psalm 51 tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this is our default state, thinking that we are number one. We are at the center and we are the Lord of our own lives. We can even be happy with the idea of God, but only as long as God matches up to what we think he should be like. As long as he fits in that box that we are happy to designate him, and as long as he stays there, then we're okay. We may call him God, but ultimately we still want to call the shots. We're disobedient, chronically going our own way, even though it leads to our own destruction. There's a deep-seated rebellion which puts us first in our lives. You see this clearly uh, if you have any input in trying to raise kids. All the effort you put into training them how to speak, how to eat, how to dress, how to behave well, you never have to teach them how to be disobedient. It just naturally comes out of them. And that's true for us. There's a disobedience inside of us. We're like this with God. We're self-centered, self-sufficient, thinking that we know best. 
Paul goes on to say that we were deceived and enslaved. We desperately want freedom, but we're victims to evil forces beyond our control, not able to see what is true. We're slaves to passions and to pleasures. These can be things that are particularly harmful and obviously harmful, but also we can be slaves to things which are actually good, but then they become ultimate things. Things like exercise, food, friendship, even serving in church. If these things become your main source of happiness, or your life takes a significant turn because of these things, there's a real danger. We're not to make good things become ultimate things. Verse 3 then rounds off the picture. We're living in mal- we were living in malice and envy, being hated and hating others. Not only is there a breakdown between us and God, but there's also breakdown with other people as well. When we're not able to live with security, we'll bring others down as we try to put ourselves up. You see that all across social media and in our relationships, trying to put other people down, trying to make ourselves feel better. And notice that these aren't occasional slip-ups in behavior. This is how we all live apart from God. With this picture painted, we can naturally push back against it and say, we're not really that bad, are we? We see lots of evidence of humanity behaving well, displaying kindness and compassion. And often we have friends that aren't Christians, but are actually much nicer and more generous than most Christians that we know. Surely it's not that bad. Or if there are some bad people, in comparison to them, I'm pretty good, and so this situation isn't as bleak as Paul might be making out. Although if we take a moment and if we're honest with ourselves, if we look back at the last 24 hours, we, we fall short of our own standards. We see evidence in ourselves in these last hours of envy, of pursuing pleasure, of wanting to go our own way rather than God's way. If we don't meet the grade that we ourselves have set for ourselves, how much less can we hope to meet the standards of the God of all holiness? Turning away from God not only has earthly impact, but it also has eternal consequence. And this is why we need a saviour. Andrew Ollerton has written a, a really helpful book on the introduction to the Bible, and in it he says this, The Messiah is not a mere moral nanny to help tidy up our lives. He is the fulfillment of a divine plan that meets our deepest need. We don't need a a moral Mary Poppins just to tidy up our our lives and give us a few tweaks here and there. We need something much greater. Because if we forget our need for God's grace, it can lead us to becoming boastful and arrogant. But we're to know that everyone is in need, but no one is too far gone. And then having this lens means that we shouldn't be surprised when, as we look at the world around us, we see corruption and we see hatred. When we hear of leaders not living up to the mark or pain being inflicted, this is evidence of living in in malice and envy, of of being hated and hating one another. We are not to be surprised but also 
we're not to be indifferent. We're to be deeply affected by the pain, the suffering that is around us. We have the example of, of Jesus in this regularly moved to compassion because of what he saw on this earth. We're to be moved with compassion as Jesus is, and we're to be stirred to action. Because as we will see in a moment, this is the situation of the world apart from Christ. This is how we were before Jesus. Once we're saved, we can know true freedom, but in this life, we still will see the impact of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll see aspects of these things, but this is no longer our identity. The victory belongs to Jesus but there's still these battles to fight. We're not to be those who are deceived. On our own, we are without hope. There's a real need for salvation, and if we miss this diagnosis, then we miss an important part of our identity and message. If we don't know where we've been, our hope loses some of its power. We need to remember that it's worse than we thought. But then, as Paul moves on to, we're to see that there's more grace than you can imagine. There's more grace than you can imagine. Psalm 36 verse 5 tells us that God's love reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness to the skies. His grace is greater than anything that we can conceive. There's a lavishness about his love, like the splendor displayed yesterday with all the golden orbs, the swords, the robes. There's a lavishness about the grace of God. Let's read from uh, verse 4. Paul says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. These are wonderful gospel, grace-filled words for us to be meditating on today. And the two words at the start of verse 4 change everything. It says, but when. But when. These two words signify a complete change from the situation we were in at one time. Now a completely different reality is in place. And we see many but when moments throughout scripture. In Genesis, the universe was formless and empty. But when God breaks in, everything changes. Light and life springs forth as he creates the heavens and the earth. Or later we see in Exodus how God's people were enslaved in Egypt. But when God intervenes, the nation is miraculously brought into freedom through the parting of the Red Sea. Or at regular intervals, the nation of Israel were oppressed by their their neighbours at the time of the kings. But when God fights for them, he brings victory, peace, and prosperity. At one time, we were foolish. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour has appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This truth breathes life into us as we allow it to sink into our souls. There's more grace than you can imagine. Let's notice a a few things that Paul shows us through this incredible gospel story of grace. Firstly, this is God's initiative. 
It's God's initiative. We were wandering dead in our transgressions. But God, like the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep, goes looking for us to bring us back to him. We couldn't save ourselves, but just at the right time, Christ died for us. And this needs to shape our confident identity. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. We are valuable to him. Being a shepherd is a a thankless task. Sheep are often getting themselves into trouble and wandering off. But Jesus notices when we are missing and comes after us. Let's pause for a moment. Allow this truth to sink into us. Because this is an area where lies can so easily creep in. We can think that we are not wanted, we are not valued. And we can accept even that God wants the people around us. You might be looking at everyone else in this room, yeah, I can understand why God wants them, but there's no way that God wants me and values me. So pause. Allow God to speak and minister to your heart now. God wants you. God values you. God sees you. We see evidence of this here. It says, he saved us. We didn't earn it. We didn't say, I don't deserve it. No, we don't. We've already seen where we've come from. We don't deserve God's favor. But he came willingly. Jesus came to live the perfect life, to die in our place at the cross and exchange our sin for his righteousness. He did this so that we can know eternity with God and not experience the just consequences for our rebellion, for us going our own way, for being foolish and disobedient. Not because of righteous things that we have done. Not because we get everything right. Not because we say the right things. Not because we try hard. Not because we have power, significance, or because it makes strategic sense. He saved us because of his mercy at the cross. And when we respond, when we repent for our sins, confess Jesus Lord, then we know the fullness of salvation. And we don't need to achieve some level of maturity. It's a gift of grace. This brings real release from striving. And we see a picture of this at the the baptism of Jesus. At that moment, the father says over his son, with you I'm well pleased. And notice that's the beginning of his ministry. It's not because Jesus had done all these amazing miracles. He had preached the gospel powerfully. The father speaks over his son, this acceptance, this I am well pleased, before he had done anything else. We are drawn into the perfect relationship between the father and the son because of what Jesus has done. And we are washed and renewed by the power of the Spirit. There is now no condemnation. We are born again. We are free in him. And then at the end of, uh, of verse 7, it says we are heirs with the hope of eternal life. And this status of heirs being given by the Father, we are loved sons and daughters. There's a real vastness about his kingdom that we are to see and to enjoy. You can imagine um, Prince George yesterday involved in that coronation service, um, holding the train of the rope, and just thinking, I'm, I'm an heir of all of this. One day, this could be me and my coronation. And for us, we're to sense 
this is, this is mine. This is the inheritance that I, have, that I have. All this vastness and goodness and splendor and majesty we get to be a part of because of Christ Jesus. We are loved sons and daughters. We're not to be those on the, the, the outside of all those crowds who are kind of pressing to look in. We are on the inside because of what Jesus has done. It was worse than we thought, but there's more grace than we can imagine. And not only do we receive what we, uh, we do, not only do we not receive what we deserve, we are brought near to be adopted into God's family. And so now we're to live with confidence in response to this truth. And Jesus calls us to change the world by doing good. Let's uh, finish off our reading this morning. Verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul returns to the instruction mentioned in verse 1. Do what is good. And notice this is for those who have trusted in God first. Because we need to make sure the order is correct. Paul's not after merely moralistic living or people trying to earn God's favor by doing good. We're accepted solely on the basis of what Christ has done. And we are then to seek to do good as a response to this. We're not accepted because we do good works. And I think this is the truth we need to remind ourselves again and again and again because we so easily slip into that. There's no way that God can love me because I don't do enough good things. We're to speak to ourselves. We're to apply this truth time and time again. We're accepted because of what Christ has done, not because of what we do. And then we do good out of that motivation because we're accepted, because we're confident, because we are free. But doing good without the proper understanding of who you are is like wearing this high-vis jacket without the authority. It's like putting it on with no authority to move tents or to direct traffic. But when we know who we are in Christ, that we can live with freedom and with confidence. Because we're to live knowing that, and also we're just like someone directing traffic in a high biz, we're meant to be noticed. They're meant to be noticed. You don't have someone directing traffic hiding behind a nearest, the nearest bush because they're a bit timid about their role. That just doesn't work. We are to be living confidently, pointing towards who Jesus is and what he has done. I wonder, are we too often hiding from the call that has been placed on us? We're called to do good so that our deeds are visible. But it's not so that people can praise our good deeds. It's ultimately so that they would see the goodness of God and live lives transformed by him. 2 Peter 2 verse 12 tells us, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice that. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. So they don't praise us, they see our good deeds, and then they're drawn into that relationship with God, saying God is good. So we don't hide our good deeds, we don't shove it in people's faces either, but when we consistently live lives of grace, peace, and truth, people will observe and seek us out. Maybe at times of crisis, people will come to us noticing that we live with, with peace and that confident identity 
or that people want to be around us because we treat other people with respect and honor. Again, we're not to be pandering to others, seeking other people's approval, but living with this confident identity that we don't need them for our security. We already have it in Christ. And so for us, Gateway, we're to be living and doing the good that is before us. But some people kept saying yes to Jesus. People like George Muller, caring for thousands of orphans, or Wilberforce, his relentless work on ending the slave trade. David Wilkerson reaching gang members in New York. They lived out what God put in front of them and kept saying yes to doing good. So let's ask today, what is the good that God's putting in front of you? It could be buying something from the food bank. It could be uh, to donate to a food bank. It could be giving time to uh, an elderly neighbor. It could be not grumbling about your boss at work. It could be how you invest the money that's been entrusted to you. There's a myriad of ways in which we can do good. And when we live in confident in our identity, we can see the real impact on the communities around us. Whether it is that bigger picture like being involved in our Oasis ministry that draws alongside those who have experienced domestic violence, or smaller scale everyday kindness to those we come into contact with. We can all be involved in doing good. Because even small things can have a, a big impact. I was chatting the other day to Hammett, who runs the Londis, just down the road. Uh, and he said, there's something different about the young people in your church. He noticed that they come in, they're polite, they're respectful, they engage positively. And he said to me that, that there's something different. And that's what we're after, isn't it? People can notice there's something different about us. I love to hear more stories of us impacting the community around us. We are called to be salt and light. This takes proximity and visibility. We're not to be those that are shrinking back, but living out who we are with confidence. And know that as we go, we have received God's grace and we're to take that into a broken world, that we carry the goodness and the presence of God. Because we know we have a world that's crying out for meaning, for freedom, for peace, for love, and for a longing for home. I mentioned Andrew Ollerton, and in his book, Introducing the Bible, he says in Scripture, we see how all, each one of these desires are met in God. And most people that we meet, we meet day by day will not be reading their Bibles but they will see how we live. So when they see our confident identity, rooted in God and living with purpose, with freedom, with peace, with love, with genuine community and a certain future, this brings huge impact to them. And before I close, I just want a, a reminder that to sustain this, we're to stay close to Jesus. Remember my lawnmower victory even with a working carburetor, it regularly will need fuel to keep going. I know enough about DIY to appreciate that. And so we need to stay close to Jesus, to remain in him as John 15 encourages us. We need to be regularly filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll have the prayer team available later on. It may be that you need to be refilled or your spiritual carburetor needs unclogging. 
The church in Galatians were warned because they began living for Jesus by walking in the power of the Spirit, but then they tried to continue in their own strength. And we mustn't fall into that same trap either. Doing good needs to be an overflow of our relationship with Jesus and constantly living in the power of the Spirit. So this morning, we're to have that clear picture of who we are in Christ. We were in a desperate situation. It was worse than we thought. But Jesus has done this work of justification, of making us right before God. And we are the recipients of unending grace today. We live in the good of Jesus' saving work, empowered to do good works by the the power of the Spirit. And we have a secure and certain hope for the future. We are called to bring this kingdom with increasing measure to the world around us by doing good in the power of Jesus. And so we're to be those that live with confident identity, ready to do good and to point people to Jesus. Let's stand together and let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you for this abundant grace that we receive through you. We thank you that it's not down to anything that we have done. We thank you that you've taken us from the Mari pit. You set our feet upon a rock and put a new song of praise in our mouths. And I pray that as we see all that you've done for us, that we would sing confidently. And I pray in this place that you would fill us afresh with your spirit. We pray for maybe those here today who have not said yes to Jesus. Pray in this moment as we respond in worship and in communion for that provocation to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Turn from the old way. Live in newness and freedom of life. And so, Lord, I pray whether people are doing that for the first time today, I've done it many times before. We choose now to live in your grace and to do good, confident in who we are in you. Lord, let us be those that shine like stars and communicate your truth and your light. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.